First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, do you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. This year in our times of gathering together for worship, we are working our way verse by verse through 1 Samuel. And right now we are in a part of the book uh, where we're talking about when God lets us have it our own way. And God's people, the nation of Israel, wanted to have a human king like all the other nations that were around them. And, and God let them. God let them have what they wanted. He let them have it their way. Now, God's prophet Samuel had already warned them beforehand that this was a bad idea, that this whole king thing was not going to turn out like they were hoping. And here in chapter 12, this is another warning that he gives to them. This is after King Saul has already been anointed. This is after King Saul has already won his first battle. Uh, and really at this point, it seems like everything is going well. And yet here again, in chapter 12, Samuel uh, still wants to drive home this idea that it was a bad idea uh, for them to request a king. He wants God's people to acknowledge that what they had done was wrong, that they blew it. They royally blew it. And he wanted to show them how they could still move forward as a people. Maybe you're here today and you feel kind of like that. You feel like you've, you've blown it. When you look back at your life, you know that you've made some missteps, some mistakes. Maybe it was recently. Maybe it was a long time ago, but you find yourself in a place where you just don't know how you can move forward from this point. In light of the things that you've done, in light of where you've been, you don't know what you can do now. And you're asking God that question, where can I go from here? And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about how no matter where we find ourselves in life, that we can always move forward. That there's always a way forward with, with God. Now let's read the passage from the Word of God as we get started. 1 Samuel chapter 12, and we'll start in verse 1. Now Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice and all that you said to me, and I have made a king over you, and now here is the king walking before you, and I am old and gray-headed, and look, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. And here I am, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed, whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I cheated, whom have I oppressed, from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not cheated us, nor oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, He is witness. 
Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did to you and your fathers. When Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, We've sinned because we've forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hand of our enemies and we will serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubal and Bedan and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you dwelt in safety. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord... But rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking a king for yourselves. So Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we've added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. And Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king." Father, we thank you today for this part of your word. Father, you know where each of us are right now. Lord, in our lives, in our spiritual lives, Father, you know those in this place who know you and those who do not yet know you. Father, you know those who are walking with you and those who are running from you. Father, you love each and every one of us and desire to speak to us. You desire to turn our hearts towards you. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in this place through your word. And we ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Lord. Amen. As we jump into this passage, some people have called this chapter, chapter 12, Samuel's farewell address. And you can look at it that way. It does sound like a farewell address. 
but to be clear, Samuel's role in this story is really not completed yet. He's going to continue to serve as a prophet of God, and after all, he still has one more king, a little shepherd boy named David that he will still anoint before his time is through. And so Samuel's story is not over yet, but in a way this is his farewell address because at this moment he is stepping away from the primary leadership role of God's people. He is no longer the judge of the people because now God has anointed Saul as the king. And so Samuel has, has stepped to the side. He is no longer the main political leader for the people of God, but he is still their spiritual leader. And he still has an important message that he wants to deliver to the people and to the king. And as you read this chapter, it almost sounds like a trial. Uh, There's a lot of courtroom language that Samuel uses in this chapter. In verse 5, he speaks about uh, the Lord being a witness and the king being a witness. Back in verse 3, he speaks about uh, how the people can testify against him if he has done anything wrong. Uh, He also speaks in verse 7 about presenting the people with evidence and making a case against them. So this is something of a trial, but the question is, if it's a trial, who is on trial? And really, as you read this chapter, there are three different trials going on with a different person in each trial. And trial number one really involves Samuel himself. Samuel is on trial in these opening verses. He makes himself the defendant, and he asks the people to take the stand if they have anything to testify against him that he did wrong. And he starts out in verse 1 by just reminding them again that uh, giving them a king was what the people wanted and that he gave them a king in response to their request. And then in verse 2 of chapter 12, he says this. He says, now here is the king walking before you. I am old and gray-headed, and look, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. He says, I'm old. My hair is gray. He says, my sons are before you. And he's not drawing attention to his sons for any other reason, but just to say that the fact that uh, he is now an old enough man that he has grown sons that are before the people. He's saying that this is how long I have walked before you as your leader. From the time I was a child to now the point where I have grown up children who are walking before you. And the first three words of verse three should remind us of the ministry that Samuel had even from the time he was a child. The first three words of that verse, here I am. You remember the first time that Samuel said those words, here I am, was back in chapter 3 when he was a little boy growing up uh, at the tabernacle with Eli the high priest. And it was the first time that God had ever spoken to Samuel. And he didn't recognize the voice of God. And so he kept running into Eli's bedroom. He did it three times and he'd run in there and he thought Eli was calling for him. So he said, here I am, you called for me. And finally, Eli realized that God was speaking to him, and he told him to go back and to lay down, and the next time he heard that voice, to say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. In other words, to say to God, here I am, because God was speaking to Samuel. You know, really, that's how Samuel lived his whole life, isn't it? He lived his whole life being available to God. He lived his whole life saying to God, here I am. 
am, friend, can you and I say the same thing? Can we say that that is what our life is about, that we just want to be available to God, that every day we want to wake up and we want to say, God, here I am. God, use me however you want to use me because that is what my life is about. You created me and you saved me and I want you to use me to the fullest extent. So God, here I am. That's how Samuel lived his life from the time he was a child. Now in verse 3 when he says, here I am, he's almost just posturing himself and saying, here I am. Now any of you can take the witness stand right now. And if you have anything to testify against me, go ahead and say it. In verse 3, he said, Witness against me before the Lord, before his anointed, his king. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Who am I, have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? And I will restore it to you. Now, you remember that uh, his son, Samuel's sons, were guilty of doing this exact same thing. Uh, of taking bribes and perverting justice, not treating people equally. But Samuel says, go ahead. Any of you that can say that I ever did that in my whole life, that I ever took a bribe, that I ever did anything but give you justice and and fairness, go ahead and and say that now. And in verse 4, the people said, Samuel, you never did that. You never did it in your whole life. And so in verse 5, Samuel says, well, then it's a closed case. The Lord is a witness. The Lord just heard what you said. And the Lord's anointed. King Saul just heard what you said. And so the case is over. And they said, yes, the Lord is a witness. You never did any of those things. So this was a short case. And Samuel came through and was acquitted. But before we move on to the next trial, I want us just to take a moment here because this is Samuel's farewell address. And just look at a few of the marks, the characteristics of Samuel that make him a good spiritual leader. Notice three marks of good spiritual leadership in Samuel's life. First of all is what we just talked about, his integrity. His integrity. Again, in verse 2, Samuel said, I've lived my whole life walking before you. That means that he lived his whole life in public. That from the time he was a child to the time he was an old man, that he walked before the people, that the people saw his life. He's not saying that he lived a perfect life or anything, but he is saying to the people uh, that I walked before you, you saw the integrity of my life. And what a remarkable thing it is that here at the end of a life spent ministering to the people and ministering to the Lord, that nobody had anything bad to say about Samuel. You know, you can see today how hard that, that is. In the last couple of years, how many public figures, how many politicians and actors and other public figures who have gotten into trouble, not for things that they did in the last year or two, but for things that they did back when they were teenagers and when they were in college or when they were in their 20s or in their 30s, because now in the age that we live in with social media, your whole life has been chronicled. In many cases, it has been self-chronicled with your own pictures and your own tweets and your own words, and it's hard to do that. We're seeing that. It's hard to live a whole life in public where nobody can point to anything you've ever done or anything you've ever said, anything you've ever posted or tweeted, and say, there, look at what you said, look at what you did. That now disqualifies you from the service that you now want to provide. And yet here is Samuel who lived 3,000 years ago, and now admittedly he didn't have many Twitter followers, but 
Samuel lived as much in a fishbowl as anybody ever has. His whole life was on view as the people of God were watching him again from the time he was a child. And yet here he is at the end of his life and no one has anything negative to say. What an example that should be to us of a life of integrity. The other couple of marks of good spiritual leadership show up down in verse 23. The people had asked Samuel to pray for them. And in verse 23, Samuel says this, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. A good spiritual leader is marked by intercession, by prayer for the people that he leads. Samuel says it would have been a sin against God for him to not pray for the people. There's really two types of, of sins. There's sins of, of commission. That's normally the type of sin we think about, things that we do that we shouldn't do. But then in the Bible, there's also this thing called sins of omission. And sins of omission are right things that we should do that we don't do. And Samuel is saying here, if I didn't pray for you, I would be guilty of a sin of omission against the Lord, something that I ought to be doing that I'm not doing. And you know, spiritual leaders today have the same duty. Pastors have the same duty. Small group leaders have the same duty. Moms and dads have the same duty for their children. We need to be praying for those that God has placed under our care. It's our duty to do that. It's our obligation to the Lord to do that. We owe them that. And Samuel understood that. Oh, he was marked by integrity and he was marked by intercession. And then also there in verse 23, he promises to give the people solid instruction. He says at the end of that verse, I will teach you the good and the right way. And this has to be the foundation for all spiritual leadership, both then and now, to, to teach the good and the right way, to teach the word of God that we all need to hear. And so Samuel's trial, trial number one, came through with Samuel being acquitted of all charges. And really the second person that's on trial in this passage is God himself. Samuel puts God himself on trial and he wants the people to understand that God, all the way throughout their history as a nation, that God has been faithful to them time and time again. And so in verse 7, Samuel says to the people, Now therefore stand still that I may reason with you. The, the, the NIV says that I may provide evidence to you concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did to you and to your fathers. And really verses 6 through 11 is, is Samuel just very quickly in just five or six verses he goes through the span of the entire Old Testament. He goes through the history of the people of God and he says all the way throughout your history God has been faithful. He starts in Exodus, and he speaks in verses 6 and 8 about their bondage in Egypt and how it was the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and delivered the people and brought them into the promised land. He wants the people to realize you wouldn't even be where you are. You wouldn't even be in the promised land at all were it not for the faithfulness of your God who has rescued you, who brought you out, who led you through the 40 years in the desert and brought you into the promised land and drove out all of the nations that were already here. And he wants them to remember that, the faithfulness of God. And then in verses 9 through 11, 
He really gives the entire book of Judges in three verses. He talks about how the people sinned against God. We'll come back to that. And then he talks about how the Lord disciplined the people and allowed them to be uh, oppressed by their enemies. But then in verse 11, he reminds them, every time you hit rock bottom, every time you cried out to God and you asked God to save you and to rescue you, God did it. And then he lists some of the judges that we read about in the book of Judges. He mentions Jerubal, which is another name for Gideon. He mentions Bedan, which is Barak. And then he mentions Jephthah. And then finally, Samuel himself, who was the last of the judges. And he's saying, God sent you all of these judges to deliver you from your enemies. And after God delivered you, he let you live for a season of time in safety and in peace in your own land. This is the faithfulness of God that he proved to you over and over and over again. So trial number two was a pretty short trial as well. The people of God had no room to make any accusation against God because he was always faithful to them. Samuel was innocent. God was totally innocent. But then trial number three, Samuel puts his finger on the people who were not innocent. And that was God's people, the nation of Israel. Because even though God had been faithful to them, as Samuel recounts the history, he says all the way throughout your history. You've never been anything but people who sin against God, people who don't trust God, people who turn away from God. You did it during the days of the judges over and over again. And then he says, you also even did it recently. He tells them in verses 12 and 13 that they were being unfaithful to God again when they requested a king. In verse 12, he says, When you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And so he's just drawing their attention to the ugliness of this, that even though God had been faithful to them time and time again, that when this threat came, when this king of the Ammonites started gouging out people's right eyes on the other side of the Jordan River, instead of turning to the God who had saved them time and time again, they went to Samuel instead and said, Samuel, we need a human king and we need one right now. And so it wasn't Samuel that was guilty. It wasn't God that was guilty. It was God's people who were guilty of sin. And of course, they weren't the last people on earth to be guilty of sin, were they? We have all been guilty. And that's why the time we have left, I want us to allow these two truths from this story to really sink deeply into our hearts today. And the first truth is this, our Sin, not just their sin, our sin is ugly. Our sin is ugly. In order for us to see that, to see the ugliness of our sin, I want us to look at three pictures of our sinfulness that show up in this chapter. And first off, our sin is pictured as a forgetting of the Lord. Our sin is pictured and characterized in this story as a forgetting of the Lord God. After talking about how God brought the people out of Egypt and brought them safely into the promised land, look at what Samuel says to the people in verse 9. He says, And when they forgot the Lord their God. So it didn't take them long to get into the promised land, even though God was the reason they were even in the promised land. It didn't take them long to do what Samuel says here, to forget 
God. Samuel says all the way throughout your history, God has been faithful, but you have been forgetful. But friends, so have we. So have we. So often we forget the Lord, don't we, in the way that we live our lives. We say that we know him, and so often we live like we don't. And we say that we love him, but so often we live like we don't. We say that we trust him, but so often we live like we don't. We're forgetful, and when a situation comes into our life, when, when a Nahash, king of the Ammonites, comes into our life, instead of turning to the God who has saved us time and time again, we think, you know, this, is, this one is just kind of too big for God. You know, God might have come through in the past, but this time I, I need to take care of this myself. This time, I need to come up with some solution. I need to work uh, this solution out for myself. I need to dig myself out of this. But we all know how that works out. It's just like quicksand. The more we try to get out and the more we flail about, the deeper into the hole we sink. Maybe that's where you find yourself today, sunk down so deeply in a hole you don't know how to get out. And we'll talk in a few minutes about how you can get out, but I think the first thing to remember is how you got in. And we get in by forgetting the Lord. And it doesn't usually happen just with one fell swoop. Usually we forget the Lord in stages. And we forget the Lord little by little. We forget the Lord really the same way we forget other people. Forget the Lord because we stopped talking to the Lord as much as we did at one time. And we forget the Lord because we don't spend as much time with Him as we used to. Forget the Lord because we don't spend as much time with the Lord's people. We forget the Lord because we stop thinking about Him and we start thinking about other things. We start pursuing other interests because it is a short step from forgetting the Lord to forsaking the Lord. And that's the second picture of our sin that we see in this passage. Our sin is seen here as a forsaking of the Lord. That's the language that shows up in verse 10, because after they sinned against God, after God allowed them to fall into the hands of their enemies and kind of gave them a wake-up call, it says in verse 10 that they would cry out to the Lord, and this is what they would say, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Astras, but now God, deliver us from the hand of our enemies and we will serve you And so when the people of God reach this low point, they realize what what they've done. We've sinned against the Lord. We've forsaken you, God. And we've done it again. And we've gone to these other gods. We've worshipped the the Baals and the Astras. We've we've started to, to treat other things as if they are the ultimate thing in our life. We've started to worship them instead of you. Now, for them, the gods that they turned to were the Baals and the Asherahs. These were the fertility gods that the Canaanite people around them worshipped. They thought if they worshipped Baal that they would have a good harvest. And so they turned to these nothing gods. And over and over in their history, they turned to worship these nothing burger gods instead of worshiping the one true God who actually had the power to do something in their life. Now, again, are we ever guilty of that? Are we ever guilty of worshiping anything other than the one true God, treating something as the ultimate thing in our life that isn't the ultimate thing in our life? Absolutely we do that. Our gods have different names. We don't call them Baal and Asherah. Maybe our God is making money in our business and being successful. 
Maybe our God is the great family trip that we've been planning for and saving for. Maybe our God is our kids' sports and the athletic careers that we envision for them in the future. Maybe our God is is our retirement plan. Maybe our God is a certain person in our life that we've begun to, to revolve our entire life around. But it could be a lot of different things. It could be a lot of different little things all mixed together. But maybe we know that somewhere along the way, we stop pursuing God as the ultimate thing in our life and in our heart. And right now, something else has a tighter grasp of our heart than God does. And if that's the case, not only have we forgotten God, but we've also forsaken God for something or someone else. And we need to see, just like they needed to see, how ugly that sin is for those of us who know the Lord. Those of us who have been saved by His grace, that we would turn to something else and worship something else as the most important thing in our lives. And all of us have been guilty of that at times. And maybe there are some who are guilty of that right now. Our sin is pictured as forgetting God and as forsaking God. And then also it's pictured as as a cycle, as a cycle that we just can't break free from. That's what verses 9 through 11 describes. It's the cycle that you read about when you read through the book of Judges. We've already kind of alluded to it, but the basic cycle is the people of God would sin against God. They would forsake God and turn to something else. And so God, in his love for them, would discipline them, would allow them to fall into the hands of an enemy who would oppress them for a period of time. And again, this was God's mercy on display, oppressing them to try to wake them up to the spiritual reality of where they were going. And so when they were being oppressed, finally, they would reach a point where they would say, we've had enough. And they would cry out to God and say, okay, God, save us, rescue us. And God in his grace would rescue them. He would send them a judge. He would send them a deliverer deliver like Gideon, like Samson, like Deborah, like many others that we read about in the book of Judges. He would rescue them. He would give them deliverance. And then they would have a season of time where they would live as they were supposed to live. And God would bless them and God would give them peace. But then what happened? <laughs> and then they'd sin against the Lord again. And they would worship false gods again. And then God would discipline them again. And around and around it goes. And it just seems like a cycle that just keeps repeating itself. And maybe you have been there. And maybe you feel like you're there now. That You, you know, for a little bit you try to live as best as you can. And things are kind of going okay. But then somewhere along the line, you know, you just kind of blow it. And then life is terrible for a while. And then you cry out to God. And you say, God, will you help me? And you try to fix it for a little bit. And for a little bit, maybe things are okay. But then you blow it again. And it's just round and around and around you go. And you just, it feels like you aren't able to break free. You're trapped in this never-ending cycle of sin that you can't get free from. Maybe you see that now. Maybe you see that even in this story, but you're not sure what to do. You see the ugliness of your sin, but you don't know where to go from here. And that's where we need to hear this second truth. Yes, our sin is ugly, church, but God's grace is beautiful. God's grace is a beautiful grace and he's shown his beautiful grace to his people Israel in this story and he wants to show that same beautiful grace to us as well. And you can see it even there in verse 14 because even though they had sinned in all the ways that Samuel described, look at what he says, if you fear the Lord, verse 14, 
and you serve him and you obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. It's a picture of a blessing that God will still give to them. Even in spite of the fact that they've asked for a king when they shouldn't ask for a king, God says, if you will just obey from this point on, I will bless you. You will continue to follow me. And then in verse 15, he gives the flip side, the other choice that they could make. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your father. So the implication is the choice is up to you, but you from this point can go either way you choose. You can either obey the Lord and you will find his blessing, his hand of blessing upon your life, or you can disobey the Lord and you will find his hand of discipline on your life. But I love what one commentator said, you know, either way God's hand is still on your life if you belong to him. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Either his hand is on your life to bless you or his hand is on your life to discipline you. But if you are in Christ, his hand is always on you. And that's his grace, isn't it? His beautiful grace that he will never cast us aside. And he will never give up on his people, no matter what we do, that we belong to him and his hand is always on us. Verses 16 through 18 is an interesting little section of this chapter where Samuel decides to literally go out with a bang. And so he asks God to send a good old-fashioned Florida-like thunderstorm on the people. And he asks God to do it in the middle of the dry season. That's what that reference to the wheat harvest there in verse 17 is about. This was in the months of May and June. After all the rain had fallen in the dead of the dry season when it was very unusual for rain to fall in Israel at that time, it would be like us asking for snow here in Melbourne on Memorial Day weekend, right? God could do it, but it would be a miracle and it would certainly get our attention. And it would especially get our attention if we heard a prophet of God ask for that to happen on that very day. And then we look up and on the same day, the thunder starts to boom and the rain starts to fall. And so when that happened in verse 18, it says that the people greatly feared the Lord and they feared Samuel. In other words, message received, right? They got the point. Okay, God agrees with what Samuel is saying, that we have sinned by asking for a king. God was giving them a wake-up call that their wickedness, as it says in verse 17, their wickedness was great. Samuel said, when you see this thunderstorm, I want you to realize that. That your wickedness and asking for a king is great before the Lord. This is evil before God, what you have done. And they received that message. They took it to heart. And again, even that is the grace of God, that he would love us enough to give us a wake-up call. He doesn't have to do that. He could just let us stay asleep in our sin comfortable in our sin, comfortable in our rebellion against God, comfortable in the path that is headed towards destruction that we are walking down. But God in his grace loves us too much to let his people go. And so he sends a wake-up call. If he needs to, he'll send a thunderstorm to get your attention. And friend, maybe that's where you find yourself today. Maybe you've been running from God. And maybe even the reason why you're here today is because God has done something like this in your life recently. Maybe it wasn't a literal thunderstorm. Maybe it was a near-death experience. 
Maybe it was a medical diagnosis. Maybe it was something that happened in your family that you never thought would happen. Maybe it was something else. But God has used something in your life in these days to wake you up to Him. And friend, if that is the case, thank God for it. No matter how hard it is what you're going through, thank God for it. That He is pursuing you in His grace. And let His grace bring you to a place of brokenness. Let his grace have its work in your heart where it brings you to a place where you will cry out to God to save you and to change you because he is the only one who can. And you can tell that in Israel's case, they got the point. Look in verse 19. It says, All the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, Samuel, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of asking for a king for ourselves. And so now suddenly they realize for the first time that what they have done was sinful. Now Samuel had said that many times before, that this was evil what they were doing. This is the first time the people of God ever said so. This is the first time they ever admitted that and acknowledged that. This was evil what we did. We already had God as our king. And yet we turned away from him and we said we wanted a human king instead. And it was evil that we did that. And then suddenly they all want Samuel to be their prayer partner, right? And you start meeting with us at Starbucks, Samuel, just praying for, I just need you to pray for me weekly, Samuel, right? So they're all asking, would you pray for us, Samuel, the one who just asked God to send a thunderstorm and the thunderstorm fell? Would you pray? Would you ask God that he doesn't kill us? Because clearly we have sinned against God with what we have done. But And then I love verse 20. It's one of the clearest statements of grace in this passage. Samuel says this, Do not fear. You have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. I I love that sentence. You have done all this wickedness, yet. He doesn't say, well, your sin isn't really that bad. You know, it really wasn't that bad what you did. It wasn't really that big of a deal. No, he, he agrees with them. He says, yes, you've, you've done all this wickedness. You, what you have done is, is wicked. It is ugly. And yet, yet. And in the next few verses, he explained to them how God still has a plan to show them mercy. In verse 25, the last verse of this chapter, he does give them a warning that if they continued on in their wickedness, that both they and their new king would be swept away. For King Saul, that's a preview of coming attractions. Because in the very next chapter that we'll look at next week, he begins the process of being swept away because of his disobedience to God. And yet for the people as a whole, in verses 20 to 24, Samuel lays out the basis for hope, both for them and for us. He tells them that no matter what they have done, because of the grace of God, that they can make a new start. And of course, so can we. And so maybe God has been speaking to you. Maybe you've realized, you know what, right now I'm, I'm kind of right where Israel was. And maybe you've realized that as I look back at my life, maybe recently in the past few weeks or months or maybe even years ago, as far back as I can remember, all that I see is just the ugliness of my sin. But you want to know, God, where can I go from here? Well, what can I do now? When we realize the ugliness of our sin, here's what we can do. The first thing we can do is what Israel did. We can call sin what it is. And we can take it to God and and confess it. 
Again, in verse 19, that's what the people of God did. They said, we have added to all of our other sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. They were finally admitting what Samuel had been telling them, that what they were doing, what they had already done, was evil in the sight of God. And maybe this is where we need to start today as well. Not with a fake pseudo-apology, to God like we sometimes do. You know, don't we do that sometimes? God, you know, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. But they shouldn't have done it either. And God, you know my disposition and you know how I've been brought up. And God, you know all the trials and the things that have been going on in my life recently. So God, I know you understand. That's not really confession, is it? That's a litany of excuses. <laughs> and, I, and I think in our culture, and it's even crept its way into our church culture that we almost have a phobia of calling sin what it is, of calling it evil, of calling it rebellion. And instead, we have diseases, and we have shortcomings, and we have conditions, and we have problems, and we have hang-ups, and we have disappointments, and we have upbringings, and we have mistakes, and we stumble. But nobody apparently sins anymore. The Bible says if any of us says we have no sin, that we are a liar and the truth is not in us. Maybe that's where we need to start, just calling sin what it is. That it's, it's an affront to God, that it's an evil in the sight of God, and we bring it before him and we confess it just like they did. And when we do that, what do we find? That God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's the first thing we do. We confess our sin to God. Here's the second thing we need to do. We need to accept that we can't go back, but we can go forward with God. You know, sometimes when God convicts us of sin, he does lead us to maybe go back and do something about it. Maybe he leads us to go and ask forgiveness for somebody that we have hurt. Sometimes God will put it on our heart to go back and make restitution for something that we have done wrong, to try to make it right as much as within our power to do. But, but still, none of us, if you think about it, none of us has the power to even go back one second into the past and undo something that we've already done. We haven't discovered that time machine from Back to the Future yet, have we? We can't go back. We can't undo the things that we have done, but we can go forward. And we don't have to stay stuck where we are in verse 20. Again, look at that verse one more time. Samuel said, do not fear. You have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. In other words, he's saying you did turn aside from following the Lord, but don't turn aside from following the Lord. He's saying something very similar to what Jesus said to the woman in John 8 who was caught in adultery. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We can't go back. We can't undo the things that we have done, but we can move forward. And, and, and sometimes Satan's biggest lie to us, one of the biggest lies he tries to tell us, is because we have sinned in the past, that now we can't do anything differently in the future. You know, the future is just going to be a replay of the things that we've done in the past, and there's nothing that we can do to change it. But because of the grace of God, church, that's not true. You and I can be changed. We can be a new creation in Christ. We can live differently in the future because of the grace of God in our lives. Now, there may be natural consequences that we have to endure because of sin that we have committed in the past, but we can move forward with God. 
You know, there are some times when we realize that there are unwise decisions that we've made in the past, ungodly decisions that we've made in the past, that we can't undo. Maybe one of those was to marry someone who is not a Christian. Maybe to take a job that you didn't really pray about, you really weren't in the right place spiritually when you made that decision. Maybe to, to do something else. I, I don't know what it is, but, but, but you're at a point where now you can't unravel that ball. You'd just be adding more sin to try to unravel the ball. You can't go back and change the decision that you made, but we don't need to feel trapped. We don't need to feel hopeless. Israel couldn't undo the decision they made to ask for a king anymore either. But God was saying to them, you can still move forward from the point that you're at right now, and you can honor me. You may be in that marriage to an unbeliever that now you know you should have never married. God doesn't want you to divorce that person. God wants you to start from where you are. He wants you to honor them. He wants you to love the person that you married and to love him. And you can honor God even in the midst of a marriage that should have never happened. Because you can start now. There's always a way forward with God. This is what Paul said in Philippians 3, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So what do we do? We confess our sin. We accept that we can't go back, but we can move forward with God. And then number three, we celebrate the grace of God. And all of the great things that he has done for us. We can celebrate his grace because of what verse 22 says. The Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, for his glory. Because it's pleased the Lord to make you his people. And he ultimately did that through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why in verse 24, when we read the last part of that verse, for consider what great things he has done for you. There's a lot of great things that God's done for us that we can think about, but we need to think about the greatest thing of all. And the greatest thing of all that he has done for us is to send Jesus for us, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross in our place, and who rose again on the third day. That's the greatest thing that he has ever done for us. You know, back in verses 14 and 15, we read about how God's hand always blesses obedience and how God's hand is always against sin. It's always against disobedience. And so here's the question. Since we're sinners, since every one of us in this room are sinners, how come God's hand isn't always against us? Think about that. How come God's hand isn't against us for all eternity? You know why God's hand isn't against us for all eternity? It's because when Jesus was hanging on the cross, God's hand was against him. This is what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But listen, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What does that mean? The reason that God's hand doesn't have to be against you and doesn't have to be against me is because God's hand was already against Jesus on the cross. He died the death that you and I deserved. And that is the beautiful grace of God. And we saw in verse 22 where it says this, it pleased the Lord 
to make you his people. Think about that. It pleased the Lord to make you his people. But with Good Friday and Easter, only two weekends away, don't forget church that the only way that it could have pleased the Lord to make you and I his people was that it pleased the Lord to bruise his own son on the cross in our place. A few verses later in Isaiah 53, this is what we read. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him and he has put him to grief. That's, that's such a mystery to think about, isn't it? That as painful as the cross was, both for the father and the son, it was painful. And yet there's a sense in which, church, it says in God's word that it pleased the Father to bruise the Son. Why? Because it pleased the Father to make you and I a part of his people. It pleased him. Because he knew what the Son was earning through his death on the cross. That he was earning for you and for me and for countless others the right to be called the children of God. Friend, have you given your life to Jesus? Have you ever come to that place where you say, yes, I know my sin is ugly, so is mine. But the grace of God is more beautiful still. That he loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die the death you deserve, the death I deserve, and to rise again so that you and I could belong to him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your gospel. That your hand was against your son Jesus on the cross, that your hand might be for us to lift us up from the quicksand that we've all fallen into because of our sin. Because of what Jesus did, you've taken our feet from the miry clay and you've set them and fixed them on a rock and we shall not be moved. Father, we thank you for that gospel truth this Easter. And I pray for anyone in this room that has not yet received that truth into their heart that today they would and they would be changed. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.